punches it back for Sapong, and he gallops towards the elbow of the 18. Sapong returns to Layal, scores! A goal to Bucket! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Club and Country podcast. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the owner-operator, proprietor, writer of clubcountryusa.com. Special thanks to Moon Taxi for the music and ESPN 94.9 for the highlights. Tim, it seems like we've had a whole lot of highlights to play lately. Eight goals in Nashville SC's last two home matches, sandwiching a scoreless effort in Columbus. They say that home is where the heart is, but for Nashville SC, recently home is where the net is. Scoreless outing in Columbus in the midweek, but then the boys in gold rolled past FC Cincinnati 3-0, the long-awaited first win over the men from the land of Skyline Chile. Yeah, you're right that it's it's been long awaited. Uh, there were four contests and no winner in the team's shared season in USL back in 2018. And if you include uh, the preseason match, there was five of those. The teams did play in preseason last year and Nashville won 3-1. But in a competitive match, this is the first victor between the two. And it's Nashville drawing first blood. And given the, the positions within the league, um, not just the table, but kind of in the grand scheme of things, you might expect that it would have been Nashville. So there's no surprise that the boys in gold are the ones who get that first rivalry blood. And it was one they certainly needed to have. It was a game where you felt like you had a lot to lose, particularly after drawing against Cincinnati in match one this season, despite dramatically outplaying the boys in blue and orange. By the way, so as a long-suffering University of Tennessee fan, I used to um, say that I would eat um, fried gator after Tennessee beat Florida. Uh, it hasn't happened much in the past mm-hmm. two decades. I've not had a lot of gator. But I think the same could be said about Skyline Chili for Nashville SC supporters. I will go on record and saying, I like Skyline Chili. It is trash food, but it's delicious trash food. And I don't really love it being slandered over and over again and all this back and forth about Nashville and FCC. I don't mind Skyline Chili, but certainly from a rivalry perspective, you expect fans to say the the local cuisine of Region X is horrible because Team X is my rival. And that sort of stuff I can absolutely get behind. So uh, I will quietly, I won't tell a whole lot of people in the Nashville SC fan base, but I will quietly enjoy Skyline myself as well. Absolutely. And uh, hot chicken can still be way better And, and <laughs> if we're talking local cuisine. Well, the victory elevated Nashville to second in the table. That's the highest, Tim, I believe they've ever been in the table after a match week in MLS play. And it kept them unbeaten at home in 11 matches as they are one of two teams in the East who hasn't lost a home match. And now Nashville has scored 22 of their 24 goals this season at Nissan Stadium. But Tim, on today's show, we're getting folks ready for a frontier the boys in gold haven't conquered yet, and that is, of course, the road. A three-match road trip is next, and Nashville still working out how to pack its form when it gets on the plane. Yeah, NSC has notched more expected goals than its opponents in two of its road games so far this season, but those ended with kind of disappointing draws in Salt Lake City and maybe a, a more exciting one in Atlanta. The boys in gold weren't the stronger team in their 2-0 loss to New York Red Bulls or the midweek trip to Columbus, as you previously mentioned. But they managed to escape Wednesday with that scoreless draw. So uh, if, if you can play on the road, uh, maybe as, the, as not the aggressor and still come away with the points, we'll see what happens when you play teams that are maybe not quite as strong and, and take that show on the road. Toronto and Miami, two of the three Nashville will be visiting, not exactly uh, playing the seasons of their lives so far. New England is, and that is the other team that Nashville will visit in the midweek 
next week. If you made it past the breaking news that we both tolerate Skyline Chili, we've got a great show for you today. We'll start with the early shout where CJ Sapong will discuss his first brace in Nashville Gold. We'll hear from Taylor Washington, the USL and MLS stalwart. He'll talk about the significance of the rivalry win. And in our Gold Nuggets, we'll dig into the numbers behind the performance, including a mind-blowing defensive stat that will further illuminate the contrast between Nashville SC and FC Cincinnati. And then, Tim, an outstanding conversation with Luke Wildman. We try to bring our audience the best guests each and every week, and Luke Wildman is probably the best possible person to talk about not just Toronto FC, but Canadian professional soccer in general. Play-by-play commentator for TSN for more than 15 years. He is the television voice of TFC, and he brought some outstanding insight about the challenges that this Toronto team has faced this year, but also about why Nashville is catching its next opponent at maybe the worst possible time yet this year. Yeah, and TFC has not had a banner year. I don't think that's a mystery to anybody, but um, Luke kind of explained why that has changed since their coaching change and, and maybe some of the things that Nashville SC is going to see this game that they didn't see when the Reds visited Nissan Stadium. And when Nashville goes on the road, do the boys in gold need to see more of the ball or can they generate sufficient success away from home while being outpossessed? That was one of many, many mailbag questions that you all sent this week that we will answer. The other big one, I think, is, of course, with the emergence of CJ Sapong and the growth of this attack, what are the implications for Ake Loba? You're not just going to put a $7 million transfer signing on the bench permanently. He's going to factor in. What does that mean for the striker depth chart, and how can Nashville work him into the attack without sacrificing the momentum it has generated moving forward? We'll talk about that in our mailbag, and then we'll go outside in for a Gold Cup update, as well as a look at the playoff race as we approach the halfway point. It's no secret that Nashville's schedule has been very front-loaded with home matches. That is not the case for Nashville's key rivals for high playoff spots. And so we'll look at what other key contenders have to face at home versus on the road, and then we'll extrapolate based on points per game where that would leave Nashville, assuming it continued its current road form. Uh, we don't think it can afford to continue its road form. It will need to earn some threes and not just some ones. We'll talk about how it needs to perform down the stretch, and so let's get into our early shout. Mukhtar splits it across towards the pole! He scores! And backflips his way! To the corner. Mukhtar puts his arm up, steps forward, hangs up the cross. It's a good cross. It's a headed goal and a brace for CJ Sapong. CJ Sapong running rampant against FC Cincinnati. Two goals against FCC. Of course, he also had goals against former clubs Philadelphia and Chicago. He has five total this year. And those calls courtesy of ESPN 94.9 John Freeman on the microphone. It was CJ's first brace in a Nashville SC kit. The fifth time a Nashville player has scored at least twice in the match. Fourth this season. The others, Mukhtar, Mukhtar, Hawkinson, Mukhtar. Not a varied list there. It was Hani <laughs> in Houston last year and Atlanta this season. Hawkinson against Toronto and Hani memorably against Chicago when he actually had the hat trick and those goals sandwiched a Randall all strike in the 35th minute. Tim, at that point, at 2-0, the match really felt out of reach for Cincinnati. Yeah, there were times, at least early on, that there was maybe a creeping sense of dread that NSC wouldn't be able to put this game away. And we'll talk about one of those moments in just a second here. But Nashville did hold firm and, and held Cincinnati off the score sheet for the entire game. The team only ended up needing one of Sapong's goal tra- contributions. Uh, they'll certainly be happy to get all three. And of course, a guy with CJ's skill set 
Uh, the, the assist might have been even the more impressive of his three goal contributions. You know the dude's going to be able to score. He's going to be able to dunk on the goal mouth, whether that's with his foot or his head. But the beautiful lefty pass to Randall Leal was pretty impressive as well. Well, that's the great thing about the score sheet as you look at it. Hani Mukhtar now has three goals and two assists in his last couple of home matches. CJ has three goals and two assists as well. They are distributing, they are receiving, and after Hani told us and, and you know spoke out last week about how he's seen himself lately as more of a scorer than a creator, he then reverted to the role of primary creator and and fed a couple of Nashville's <laughs> goals, Randall Leal scoring the other one. Let's get back to CJ Sapong and hear his thoughts after another sterling performance by him and by the boys in gold in the win over Cincinnati. It feels good. Uh, I would say just now it's it's showing up on the stat sheet. I felt confident with the team, even in the games that I wasn't getting on the stat sheet or, or scoring, um, wearing the, the defense down, putting myself in positions to win free kicks for our team. And when you have a team with so many dynamic players that all have an opportunity to, to have an impact, it's about just putting you know the next guy in the best position to, to help the team. And that's a... I guess ideology that I, I've carried with myself throughout my whole career, and I really I think it speaks volume to the team and you know the personalities that we have because there's a, a chemistry that's flowing uh, through us, and you've been able to see the last couple games. So again, five goals for Sapong this season, four in the last four matches, and gratifyingly, two of them against former employers of his in Chicago and Philadelphia. Tim CJ's making a case to stay on the pitch, even when Ake Loba is fit and ready to join the starting 11. Yeah, Wes, what is the number one uh, responsibility of a striker on any soccer team? Scoring. Yeah, as long as CJ keeps doing it, Gary Smith would be foolish to take him off the pitch. Uh, Obviously, it means it's a little bit more difficult to play Loba, but I don't think anyone in Nashville would be upset about having a problem where guys are scoring at too high of a clip that your $7 million transfer can't get onto the field. And often personnel problems resolve themselves, either Mm -hmm. through form or through, we hope not, but through injury. Uh, At this point, I guess it just gives Gary more of a luxury to work Loba in. You know, he can play a full second half if he needs to. He can, you know, he'll be fit enough soon to do those kinds of things. You don't have to rush him into the lineup just because you're desperate for goals. And then by the time he is ready to go full 90, which shouldn't be too long from now, Mm -hmm. then where do things stand? Has somebody's form dipped on the road? Do you need a different answer? There's going to be heavy rotation, three matches in yeah. a week coming up. So I think there could be organic opportunities for him to work in that don't involve a seismic shift in the depth chart, but nonetheless could be tricky. Yeah. Well, it's worth noting also that once Nashville's back line is, is all returned from the gold cup and fully healthy, there's a pretty good chance that the formation doesn't look like the one that we've been seeing the past couple of weeks as well. You could see Loba as a natural winger. You could see him as one of those members of the front three. There are different ways that he can get plugged into the lineup. So even if he's not the pure number one striker because you don't want to take CJ out of a role where he's doing so well, there are ways that Ake is going to get onto the field for sure. Yeah, amongst Loba's numerous skills, perhaps the most coveted and most valuable for his team right now is that versatility. He can, mm-hmm. he can slide in anywhere in that front area only one player in the nashville squad has played more minutes in his career against fc cincinnati than taylor washington he started saturday for the second straight contest he went the full 90 he's now played 392 minutes against the lions while wearing nashville gold second only to matt lagrasa's 424 lagrasa also involved against cincinnati on saturday night and after the match taylor waxed poetic about the importance of the club's first win over its northern rival, a win to which he contributed by bailing out the team on what looked like it was going to be 
potentially a two on zero breakaway against Joe Willis. Washington saved the day, and here was the call on ESPN 94.9. Acosta sends it downfield. Brenner able to turn his defender. It's a two on one for Cincinnati. Brenner is in, squares it across. Washington takes it away. A sure goal saved by Taylor Washington. Taylor Washington started that play on the right side of the field. He sprinted all the way across, almost the width of the Cumberland River, to get there to Brenner. One of my friends likes me, he's like, God bless you with some speed. The minute that Brenner took that touch a little bit more in, I thought he was going to try and play it. And, you know, sometimes in this game, luck is the residue of design. You know, you just get lucky and you, you put in the hard work and good results happen. As I was walking in, I saw Ian Air, and you know he said we finally got him. And you know it's funny, I was watching some of the some of my clips from I think Cincy game in 2018. You know, just tie after tie after tie. And we even played him in preseason, and it was a tie. You know, it's a, such a such a rivalry for us to to win it in such an emphatic fashion is incredible. Tim Taylor wasn't just on the pitch for the win. He played a key role in that victory, not just on that defensive play, but also getting down the left flank, using his speed to test Cincy's defense, and providing a safety valve, a pressure valve, in a match where Nashville was way behind in possession. Yeah, the speed that he provides on the left flank is is always important, whether that's getting forward or tracking back. But I do think, you know, this dude had one of the highlights of the game, despite the fact that Nashville SC scored three goals in the contest. And when that's a defensive play, you really have to take note of it. Anyone who has spoken with Taylor ever knows that this is legitimately one of the nicest and most genuine guys on the planet. He's nicer than anybody you'll ever meet. I know nice is often used as a, as a way to compliment somebody when you don't have anything else to say, but that's not the case with him. But um, Despite that, it's not quite as obvious to people, maybe at least people who weren't around as Nashville SC fans during the USL days, that this is also one of the fastest players in Major League Soccer. He's worked hard to add some of the more technical aspects to his game to complement that speed, and that's what has him on this Major League Soccer team, making that jump from USL. And it honestly could not have happened to a nicer guy to, to work as hard as he did to take advantage of his physical skills. And I would challenge our listeners to try to think of who might be a better backup left back in Major League Soccer. And you come up with some names of some qualified guys on that list that would that would approach what Washington gives you. But when you factor in the cultural fit, mm-hmm. the, even the institutional knowledge that he has, having been around and, and being able to work in players now that are younger than him and, and help them understand how this club works. Uh, if you're wondering as an audience whether Washington is as highly regarded within the club as he is within the supporter section? The answer to that is (laughs) yes, absolutely he is. This is not a facade. Uh, A little anecdote about Taylor, too, that speaks to his his character. Uh, He and I were calling a Lipscomb soccer match together, actually, this winter before uh, things started up for the team. And I was about two hours out from the match. I like to get there early. I I was packing up my stuff, and I saw I had two missed calls from Taylor, my color commentator for the match. And I was like, oh, no, he's canceling on me. Like, it's over. Something came up with the club, some other emergency. Hope he's okay. Listen to the voicemail. Hey, man, drop in my uh, convenience store on the way to the game. I want to see if I can bring you anything. I'm getting some <laughs> stuff. Like, it's that kind of humility. That's a basic, you know, act of, of humanity that's not going to win any kind of humanitarian awards. But it speaks to the the level of, of consideration that he gives in all aspects of his operation. It is good to see a good person like that succeeding on the pitch as he did Saturday against Cincinnati. Gold Nuggets, let's go to Nashville's home form and and talk a little more about how strong the boys in gold have been at Nissan Stadium this year. They are one of two teams in the East without a home loss, the other being Columbus, the team that Nashville drew in midweek. Nashville now 6-0-5 
in its friendly confines, the most honed points and goals in MLS. And you can jump in and you can say, yes, of course, but they've also played more home games than anybody else. That's accurate. They've played 11. The next closest competitor has played eight. But if you adjust for matches played, Nashville's still the second highest now goals per match at home this year. Nashville's played Cincinnati twice. They've played Chicago and Toronto, both in Nissan Stadium. So there is a little bit of a caveat. All those teams have really struggled defensively so far this year. But, you know, when you are kind of trying to poke holes through something that is an extremely positive stat, it's better to have the opportunity to try to poke holes in a positive stat than to not have the positive stat in the first place. How about this? In the 12th minute of the first meeting between Nashville and Cincinnati, Brenner, the striker for Cincinnati, scored a PK. After that moment, Yopstam's team did not muster another shot on target against Nashville in either match. That's 168 minutes without Cincinnati testing Joe Willis. Yeah, and it's a very, very nice statement about Nashville, and, and particularly last weekend's shorthanded edition with numerous members of the back line unavailable. This is, I'm going to go the other direction that I just went. You might be tempted to say, oh, but it's just Cincinnati. But this Cincinnati team has been pretty effective offensively over the course of this year. Um, the defense has been awful, but the offense has been pretty good. So it's a deserved honor to say, listen, we're holding a, a mediocre at worst, which is probably as the most glowing compliment anyone's ever said about FC Cincinnati. But we're holding <laughs> a mediocre at worst offense to no shots on goal and that's pretty impressive yeah it is a team that went up to montreal after not knowing you'd be in montreal until the wednesday of the match week and scored four goals mm -hmm. uh, they'd scored in each of their last six matches i think we both expected or at least i'll speak for myself expected nashville to win last weekend but saw maybe a 3-1 type of contest you know maybe a I, I, pre I predicted 5-1 on the website so i was i was looking for i was looking for bullish. goals for both teams you were bullish well you weren't far off you weren't yeah. far off from getting that that kind of performance from nashville let's compare this is this is i think a big picture view that you may not get anywhere else except for of course on clubcountryusa.com this is the kind of stuff tim brings all the time Comparing Nashville and Cincinnati at this point in their expansion builds is is quite interesting. Let's get into some numbers and compare how they've done so far in their expansion build. Nashville is now 38 games into its MLS experience. And so I went back to the same point for Cincinnati, the first 38 games that Cincy played and compared those results. In those matches, Nashville, 58 points, FCC, 27 points. That's 1.5 points per game for Nashville, 0 0.7 points per contest for FCC. And Nashville's 14 wins are already more total regular season wins than FC Cincinnati has in its entire three-year history. So an extra year to play with, and Nashville now has more wins than FC Cincinnati in club history. Saturday night's win accomplished that. Gave them the 14-13 advantage. You count the playoff victories, of course, and you can add a couple more onto that, as FC Cincinnati has not sniffed the playoffs. Goals scored. How's the attack doing? Nashville better there. 48-35 to 35 total, so 1.3 per match to 1. And remember, of course, that Nashville spent the first half of last year really focusing and doubling down on defense before becoming more expansive. Goals conceded. Here's the biggest contrast of all. Nashville SC has given up 36 goals, so just less than 1 per match. Cincy, 84. 2.2 per contest. Just a dramatic difference between these two franchises, and we know that. This is not something people are tuning in and are going to be shocked by, but mm -hmm. the numbers really just illustrate how stark the difference has been in the way each of these two have started their MLS tenures. Yeah, I've got, I've got one more stat for you, Wes. It took Nashville 36 games, regular season games in Major League Soccer, to reach 54 points. That was two games ago, obviously. You mentioned that they have now played 38 games. At that point, Nashville had accumulated more MLS points 
total in its existence than FC Cincinnati, which had played 69 games, almost twice as many games as Nashville. And Nashville passed FCC in points with 54. FCC only had 52. And um, having lost to Nashville SC, I don't remember what Cincinnati did in the midweek, honestly. <laughs> but having lost to Nashville SC, I think they might still be on that number. And if you zoom out and, and compare Nashville to other expansion clubs, we're not going to bring the, the numbers here. But when you talk about the struggles that an Austin team is having, who built a great culture and I think a pretty good roster minus a striker. When you look at, of course, Inter-Miami, who's been even more destitute than Cincinnati this year. Mm-hmm you start to really understand how hard the MLS expansion process is when you don't have the coffers of an Atlanta, who obviously has not gotten it right since the first couple of years. Or if you do have the coffers and just use them extremely poorly. Right. And, and Nashville you know, wouldn't be accused of being one of the highest spending teams in the league. But when you look at the way it's applied its approach, I think you said in, in private conversation recently that there's just not a group that has done it much better than what mm-hmm. Mike Jacobs and, and this front office have been able to do. Yeah, and the way he's done it is by taking some of the best aspects of of the teams that have done a really good job of it in the past, whether that's um, Atlanta. But yes, of course, Sporting Kansas City is always going to get the shout out here. But Seattle, Columbus, that is part of what he wants this club to be is a team that's not going to kind of live and die on, on whether a single signing works out like we've seen, unfortunately, start to happen with Atlanta in recent years. Up next, good news and bad news for Nashville SC. The bad news is they go on the road, a place they've not won this year in four contests, although three of those results have been draws. The good news is, I think the good news at least, is that they're playing a Toronto team that has not really found its footing this year. They won one of their first 11 matches, but since a coaching change, firing manager Chris Armas, they are unbeaten in their last four, have a pair of wins in those, and they've beaten good teams. They beat New England on the road, drew Orlando City at home, they drew a Red Bulls team at home, the Nashville lost to they're only lost this season so it's really interesting to me to look at at you know the differences in this club tim between the time we saw them last a 3-2 nashville win then they fired their manager chris armas and since then they haven't lost they've been much better yeah it's worth noting that the advanced numbers still don't really like tfc the reds have had less xg than the opponent in each of the four games since armas is firing but like you've mentioned they have won two of those and drawn two of those so they have outperformed those numbers um, you could fairly say a team that feels unburdened after the axing of a coach who is maybe not so popular with his team members is probably uh, the new coach bump comes because you get more determined finishing. You get uh, maybe a bit more determined goalkeeping from um, Alex Bono over the weekend in particular had a great game. These are the kind of the margins on which you say, okay, this is where the new coach bump comes. They're not going to generate, they're not going to prevent that much more of the, of the opposing attacker or, or their own attack. And so it comes from taking advantage of what you get in the margin. To talk about Toronto FC and preview this upcoming match, we connected with arguably the most revered play-by-play broadcaster in the soccer world of Canada, Luke Weilman. He calls matches for Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver and has tremendous perspective on what TFC has gone through. Here's our interview with Luke Wildman. Luke Wildman is a play-by-play commentator for TSN's coverage of Toronto FC, CF Montreal, and Vancouver Whitecaps. He also hosts international soccer coverage for TSN, including the World Cup, Euros, and English Premier League. He's won multiple Canadian Screen Awards, designating him as Canada's best play-by-play announcer. He moved to Canada 15 years ago after covering English Premier League for BBC in his native England. And most recently, Luke made his return to BMO Field for Toronto's first home match since last season. Luke, welcome. That had to be a good feeling to be in a press box again. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible night. They they played two home games now. Toronto FC. Uh, they started with Orlando and then played against the Red Bulls on a Saturday and then a Wednesday. And and the first home game they had seven thousand fans in, of which three and a half thousand tickets were season seat holders, and the other three and a half thousand were given to frontline workers and healthcare heroes uh, to show thanks for what they've done in the pandemic. So it was really cool atmosphere inside BMO Field that night. Then they doubled the attendance for the second game to fifteen thousand. It sounded just as loud for both games because believe me with 7,000 in the stands uh, in that first game it was uh, it was incredible to be back uh, goosebumps on the arms when you when you hear the fans again um, and just to see not only that the fans able to watch the team but the players able to start building that bond and that relationship again you guys know in Nashville what it's like to, to have to have that relationship between the players and fans a very special occasion on a match day something the fans look forward to um, and that that happened on that night against uh, Orlando, especially with Josie Altador, who'd been exiled and hadn't been with the first team, coming off the bench, scoring a goal in front of the supporters section at BMO Field. You know, for these players who they played two or three home games last August, September time when it was just against Canadian opposition, but no fans in the stands. So that was the first time that Orlando game since uh, the home opener of 2020, 16 months that they've been able to play in front of their home fans. So it just gave everybody a lift on and off the what has it been like covering such a bizarre season, season and a half for TFC and the other Canadian clubs? You're trying to keep your finger on the pulse of teams that are or have been playing thousands of miles from where you're located. Two of the three clubs have experienced managerial changes, of course, with Wolfred and Nancy coming in right before the season for Montreal and, of course, yep. the Chris Armas saga this season uh, for Toronto. How have you stayed close enough to all three clubs to provide an accurate picture for viewers when they have been playing in Florida and Utah? Well, a lot of it has been down to the clubs and the existing relationships, obviously, that we already have. And, and they, I think, have been very aware of the fact that they need to keep communication open. Uh, they need to make sure that we're armed with the information. We need to be able to continue to build those relationships with their own fans, albeit in a different way that they would like to in an ideal situation of, of actually having that contact. So, you know, there's been a lot done, um, you know, calls with players, calls with with uh, management. It's, it's basically just things you used to do face to face. You're now doing over Zoom or on, I mean, everybody's doing the same thing in every walk of life, everywhere around the world. Um, Chris Armas has the uh, the honor of, well, maybe not the honor, but the first Toronto FC coach ever in franchise history that I never actually met because <laughs> he came in in February. We weren't allowed to go to preseason training, obviously, because uh, that was done behind closed doors. Then they went down to Orlando. And unfortunately for Armas, one game before they actually got to come and play at home at BMO Field was when um, he uh, lost his job. So, you know, he had a lot stacked against him in terms of uh, trying to make a go of things with TFC. But that was one of the uh, one of the things in terms of, you know, building relationships with a new head coach. Armas was absolutely fantastic. You know, for someone we'd never met face to face, just trusting us immediately with giving us information about the team, lineups, that sort of thing. Um, can't thank him enough for what he did in that in that situation. But yeah, I mean, MLS is back seems an awful long time ago now, but it was this time last year when I think we were just happy in whatever form to have the game back, to have Major League Soccer going once again. Um, then they came home for a few weeks before finishing the season from September to the end of the year. It was away games plus home games in Hartford, where, which is where Nashville won the playoff game last year. And then they, then they went to Orlando for the start of this season. So yeah, I, I don't think I've, you know, apart from, 
waving at a distance from the broadcast booth the other night down to pitch side to, uh, at a few players or coaches that uh, we not had that contact since, you know, the, the week before the pandemic began. And, you know, I still have an empty page in my notebook or, or half page um, where I'd started my notes for Toronto against Nashville, which should have been at BMO Field on that Saturday yep. just before the world closed down. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll keep that forever as a reminder of, uh, of what would have been and, the, and then what happened after that. Luke, me too. That was going to be my radio play-by-play debut in MLS because our normal radio guy was going to be doing the TV call, uh, John Freeman. So, yep, I, I hear you. We were prepping for the same match that, that never transpired. I was driving to training, actually, when I got the call. Training is shut down, and the game is in doubt. And yeah. here we are. Uh, here we are, finally, with this team coming up to BMO Field. You mentioned the Chris Armas saga. And you know we want to we want to talk about the redemptive stories around this Toronto team and the resurgence, but I think it would be irresponsible as not to visit that brief era um, this season as well. You know you had a team in Orlando that was exiled, that was undergoing just an extreme cultural challenge and in you know logistical challenge. But Montreal was going through the same down in Miami. What was it that clicked so well for Wilfred Nancy in Montreal that Chris Armas wasn't able to summon? Was it a cultural issue, or was it more of just a tactical issue that? Armas and what he wanted to do just wasn't a fit for what this club was was built personnel-wise to accomplish. Well, the first thing I'd say is that Montreal, Vancouver, TFC deserve an awful lot of credit for mm-hmm. how long they have been away from home mm-hmm. and, and for what they've tried to do this year to make things better than last year. And last year, it was Vancouver staying in a hotel in Portland. It was Montreal in, in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, which, by the way, isn't a bad place to be um, if you've got your family with you because it's a fa- fabulous uh, view of Manhattan from that, that hotel. But uh, they didn't. They were just stuck in their rooms. They couldn't really go out and do anything because of the COVID situation and having to make sure that they were ready for games tfc were stuck in a hotel in hartford they couldn't even come back into canada because Mm -hmm. of the quarantine situation so they were split away from families all three organizations went into this year and said we can't have that that can't happen again the whitecaps moved 90 people including dogs and cats and kids all from vancouver to salt lake tfc one of the reasons they went to orlando was because of the availability of you know the condo blocks and and, um you know the facilities that families use and and they took people down there on mass same with Montreal so they tried to make it different in that respect but it's still not quite like being at home it's like being an MLS player in a different market away from everything that you're used to Um, Montreal I think deserve a lot of credit for the way that they moved quickly once Thierry Henry went and they decided we don't want to change at this point. It's right on the verge of preseason. We think we've got some building blocks in place from last year that Thierry Henry had put in place. Wilfred Nancy's the assistant. He's the man. Let's go with it. Okay. They'd already assembled the squad at Renard. The sporting director did that. So he wanted consistency. He wanted someone of the same mindset. Chris Armas, I think, was a different situation in terms of, and by the way, TFC was an absolute circus for the first however many years of the franchise, mm-hmm. from 07 to 2015, not getting in the playoffs. Then Greg Vanny comes in, provides them stability, and you've got six years there where they make you know, playoffs, they get into three finals in four years, and then Vanny decides to, to go and not renew his contract. So Armas is following this guy who's been the only one to ever bring success in Toronto FC, um, expected to to have them at the top of the standings. No new players coming in. They, they kept pretty much the same roster from last year. They hadn't got Soteldo, the designated player at that point. Um, they have COVID cases in preseason, shuts the squad down for two weeks. They all have to go to Orlando. They can't play at home. He falls out with Josie Altador. He wants to change completely the way they play to go to a Red Bulls high-pressing style. 
The players aren't quite used to that. Maybe they're not ready for it, the right type of players. Everything just went against Chris Armas. And, you know, Michael Bradley said he probably didn't stand a chance, you know, and that's that's the feeling in terms of, yeah, you know, I spoke to Jim Curtin when when um, when when Armas was hired and, and he was full of praise for what he thought Armas could bring. And Jesse Marsh, another one, TFC put him up for interview on, on TSN because, you know, they have that relationship in the past. And Marsh was saying, you know, Armas, he ticks all the boxes. He's going to be a success. But when you stack all that against him that, that he'd, he'd got to deal with, I think Altador was one of the, the the final straws. And then that 7-1, how, how do you lose 7-1 at D.C.? You know, keep your job after a six-match winless run. It was just untenable in the end, and they had to make a change. And so Nashville SC fans are, are pretty familiar with Chris Armas just from following him previously with New York Red Bulls and are pretty familiar with a lot of those reasons that you mentioned why it didn't necessarily work out. What they don't know a ton about is the new guy. What is Javier Perez's philosophy and what does he bring to this team that's that's maybe a change or maybe some of the things that are the same as, as were happening under Armas? Yeah, I think... I think the first thing is you usually get, don't you, a new manager bump when they mm-hmm. come in. You usually get, and the jury is still out on how long Javier Perez will be in charge um, and how successful he's going to be. Obviously, four matches unbeaten now, the two wins coming at New England when nobody expected them to go there and get a win off the back of a 7 1 loss at DC with a new manager. And then uh, this weekend when they went into Chicago, 1 2 1, Chicago missed as many chances as they're likely to miss the rest of the season. Bono stood in his head, had a career high in saves. I, I still, to this moment, even having called the game, have no idea how TFC escaped with three points from that game. And in the middle, 2-1-1 draws against Orlando and New York Red Bulls at home. So they flipped it on the head a little bit in terms of winning on the road and, and getting those draws at home. But, but you see a team, and it's difficult to see whether the bounce and the, the change in attitude and environment is because they're home, how much of it is because they're back in you know, the training facility in their own environment with their families, how much is down to Perez. I think he's empowered the players. I think he's looked for consistency. They, they've had a couple of unchanged lineups and then they, they made just a, a couple of changes at the weekend, but tried to keep the same formation. He's someone who has quite a few links from the past with some of the players who were already there. Michael Bradley knows him from the US national team setup. He was an assistant coach at the 2014 World Cup. Um, he's been a U.S. youth national team head coach, a team that had Mark Delgado in it, uh, actually cut Alex Bono a while ago from the youth national team program, but they've made up on their friends again. Um, so he came in with a bit of knowledge, having come in as Armas' assistant in February. Um, and often you get that assistant is the guy that the players tend to gravitate towards anyway, if they're not getting on with a head coach and it's down to the assistant to build those relationships. So I think, you know, it was the right choice at the time. This is someone who was assistant to Patrick Vieira at New York City and to Dome Toron for four years. Mm. So, you know, he's he's served his time in the league. He's been in the U.S. since 2009, wrote the coaching curriculum for the youth development alongside Claudio Reyna. So he knows the landscape in Major League Soccer. And he's coached in Real Madrid's academy in the past. And, you you, you know, you can't be a fool and do that. So complete change to, to, to Armas. He's much more quietly spoken. Um, he's much more reserved. Um, but I think he's playing to the players' strengths and right now he's got them all on board and I think that's crucial. You know, if th- this is a squad that finished second in the race for the Supporters' Shield mm-hmm. last year. They've added Sattel, though. Still not really good enough defensively in terms of, you know, they've, they've had some injuries as well and they're conceding far too many goals, the most in the league. But he's got the players on side and if he's got a full squad with Altador, Sattel, though, Pozuelo all in the lineup, they've got a chance to climb the standings pretty quickly here. 
The advanced stats have only gotten a little bit better, but as you mentioned, those results are, are basically night and day at this point. Does that seem like it's kind of a morale bump with these guys kind of believing in it a little bit more and maybe finishing better? Maybe you, you mentioned Bono standing on his head that game. Is that some yeah. of that stuff, just a belief in the man? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so, that there are absolutely still the frailties there. And in mm -hmm. each game, you know, there certainly has not been, um, you know, you don't watch TFC and think, wow, 90 minutes under Javier Perez, they put a great performance together for the full game. And this is actually happening now. You think, you know, there have been spells really good spell first half against Orlando where they were magnificent, probably the best they played all season went three nil up at new England somehow at Gillette stadium in his first game, then conceded the two goals and then had to hang on for dear life at the end, just to get the three points there. So the two wins they've got have been hanging on rather than playing superbly and dominating uh, the two home games, that Orlando game, long periods played well, but then, then gave up a goal. Red Bulls, they, they did not play well first half. They couldn't find any way to try and break them down. You know, Soteldo, Pozuelo had all this space against uh, Orlando, who sat off a bit more. The Red Bulls denied them that, and they couldn't really find a way to get through it. Uh, and then they come out and they have you know, 40 seconds after half time, they're one goal down. The next five, 10 minutes, they're all over the place and could have been two or three down. But then they find a way to get into the game and they've got that quality. So tell though, Pozuelo, Altador comes off the bench again and they find a way to get a goal back and, and get a point there. But this is still a team that is fragile. And they might have taken a lot of a lot of hope or a lot of confidence from getting that result at the weekend. But still, they were defensively... Um, disjointed enough for Bono to have to make 13 saves. And, you know, the one thing to watch out for on the weekend is if Nashville get one, watch for what happens the next 10 minutes. Are they able to say, okay, let's move on? Or do they still have that shaky moment for the next few minutes where there are other chances coming the way of Nashville uh, and they could capitalize and maybe get another? It's a confusing cocktail, isn't it? When you have that fragility, but you also have that hope and, and maybe increased morale. But then you look at the payroll, you look at the veterans, and you just have a hard time sitting here and saying a team captained by Michael Bradley is going to struggle all season long. There, there seems to be, I think, a sense of maybe fatalism for other other clubs of Toronto's going to figure it out. What do you think the expectation is for this group now after those early struggles? But but given all the the component parts that are there that would seem to point to a team that always has the ability to climb itself out of the hole. What do you think it can still achieve? Yeah, I think if you look at the players' union figures, and there's obviously debate always about whether they're right, whether they're wrong, but <laughs> you know, generally they're close, right? They're, they're, they give you an idea, and uh -huh. TFC have the second most expensive payroll in Major League Soccer. So to be outside the playoffs is not good enough. Really, to be outside the top four of the Eastern Conference isn't good enough um, to not get that home playoff date. But having said that, with where they have been and where they, they are right now, now it's just about trying to make sure you get into the postseason. And they've closed the gap a little bit since making the change. They, they have a lot more work to do. The one thing that is in their favor, and, and credit to uh, Ali Curtis and Bill Manning at TFC for the way that they structured the schedule, um, they were always hopeful that they would be back. You know, this is even a little bit later than they hoped to be back. They, they hoped by the June international break that they could be back in Toronto. It didn't happen until July, but they only played four of the first 12 were so-called home games in Orlando. So between now and the end of the season, they are stacked with a lot of games at home, which are now at BMO Field, reducing the travel, fans in the stands, you know, and the opportunity to build on what they've got here and try and push towards the end of the season with a team that, you know, over the last two or three years, when they have been successful, have always been 
very difficult to beat at home, especially given, you know, the new COVID reality and you don't know which squads are coming in, if they're full squads, if players might have to miss from other teams, depending on, you know, quarantines, all of that sort of stuff, vaccinations. So, so I think TFC feel right now, certainly that they have the players to be able to, to climb the standings. Um, defense is the big worry but when you look at when you look at what even the last couple of games Soteldo is able to do and the way that that then frees up Pozuelo and now they've got Altador back firing as well and by the way he looks like somebody who um for the first time in a while you know he's got a point to prove he he feels hard done by with what happened and the the 20 minutes he came in against Orlando when he got his goal I've not seen that hunger from Josie Altador in a long time. Had a stop-start season last year. Injuries have caused him a few problems. But this is a guy that has scored huge goals down the years. Won MLS Cup for them in 2017. Scored the goal against Columbus in the conference final to get them there. You know, whenever TFC have had big moments, it's always been Josie Altador involved. And at that time, it was Jovinko and, and Vasquez who were, were playing the assisting roles. Now they've got Pozuelo and Soteldo. So they'll hope that those three together can have that understanding and fire this side towards the playoffs. A lot of the guys you've mentioned here uh, read like a who's who of, of the 2017 Gold Cup champions. Bradley, Altador, <laughs> Gonzalez, Dwyer. It is kind of an aging team in a lot of yeah. respects, but this is also a team that has a lot of youngsters. Um, obviously, Richie Larea is, is away right now with Canada. Um, unfortunately, Io Ekinol is out for the year after getting injured on, on international duty with Canada. Spinning it forward, what is the future of this club? Do they kind of move along from that from that 2017 Gold Cup generation and, and focus on the youth and some of these international signings? Yeah, it's it's interesting in in where they've gone with this, the Soteldo signing is a much younger designated player mm-hmm. than they've had in the past. Um, when you looked at before when they went with Defoe and then replaced him with Altador and then, you know, Bradley, I suppose Bradley doesn't seem like a young, young designated player, but he was maybe when he came in in 2014. He's been there that long now and he's 33 years old, but he was sort of towards the, the late 20s. But they've been looking at younger in terms of the designated players. You're right, it's an aging squad. They have got a good crop of youngsters coming through. Some players who, um, like Ralph Preso, scored his first MLS goal at the weekend. They've got Jaquil Marshall-Rutty, who's uh, 16 years old and, and is said to be one of the top two or three talents in North America in his age group. They've got Jaden Nelson, a couple of players there, Preso Nelson, who, who played at the Under-17 World Cup for Canada a couple of years ago. The difficulty... And Armas said one of the things he said was that he wanted to try and bring the youth in, as you know was the case at the Red Bulls, where they have this this pathway through New York Red Bulls two into the first team, and, and that's something that they look to do. Armas never really had the, the opportunity to do that, and now I think they're in a situation with Javier Perez where it's you got to try and keep a job here, and you've got to win, and you've got to make sure that this team consistently is picking up points to get up the table. So there is youth there, whether or not. Right now is the time when they're going to be able to use those players. They've had to do with Preso because of injuries and Preso came in and did a job. Uh, players out at the Gold Cup. Um, they had to with Luke Singh at the weekend, who, who's in mm-hmm. his first year. Justin Morrow got injured in warm-ups, went out, out of warm-ups. Singh had to come into the side. So there are players there who can make a difference. But if you're talking about 1-11, to what's TFC's best team right now? And they're playing to win and they're playing to get out of this situation and get into the playoffs then youth probably isn't coming into that as they're relying on the players that they know have got them success in the past, whether that's aging legs or not. Closing out, Sunday represents a viable chance for Toronto to gain a foothold in that climb back against a Nashville team that, yes, is in second place now, but has a glut of road matches ahead and many challenges, including the one visiting Toronto here this weekend. 
In your opinion, what's the key for Toronto to get a result against a Nashville team that it almost beat, almost got a result against uh, just a few weeks ago, even under Armas? What's the key for them to get that result at BMO Field this weekend? Yeah, and that, that's another example, that game. Um, I wasn't calling that game because I was busy doing the Euros, but I, I remember getting home from the studio and I caught the last half an hour of the game at the time. And it, it, it's, it went back to olden days of TFC for the first eight years of the franchise where it's, how are they going to mess this one up? And, you know, <laughs> they found a way to do it in the end. Um, that's the biggest issue for me right now is the fragility of this team. Are they going to be good enough defensively? Are Canada going to get knocked out in the, the Gold Cup semi-final in time for the players to come back? And if they do, are they going to be able to jump straight in? Because they have an issue at, at the back in terms of not having fullbacks fit right now or fullbacks away at the Gold Cup as well. So that's a problem for them. Um, and the other thing is just putting a, a full 90-minute performance together and how they react when they go behind. Because watching Nashville this season, there's a fair chance they're going to score. Right. They've they've got they've got plenty of people who are going to put pressure on the TFC back line, plenty of you know damage that they can do. So if they do, how does TFC respond? You know, I don't have a concern as much if TFC get an early goal and go one up because they're at home and they have the quality if Nashville are pressing to try and go and get a second goal and double that advantage. My concern would be for TFC. Um do they have the mentality and you know the strength to be able to come from behind against the Nashville side that we know, yes, are very good defensively, but also can cause them so many problems going forward? And, and that would be the worry. If, if it's 1-0, does it become 2-0? And then is, is that too big a hole? Well, Luke, we are looking forward to it Sunday. Best of luck on your broadcast. And uh, thanks for taking the time to spend with us today. Good to chat with you guys. All the best for this season. There seems to be a sense of optimism around this club, given their talent level, given their track record, given the expectation of winning. And, and you just wonder now if, if given the chance to lead, folks like Josie, Michael Bradley, et cetera, are going to bring this team back into playoff contention. Well, certainly Josie wasn't going to do it while Chris Armas was still in town. So that's nope. definitely something that is a benefit. Uh, I know Josie has kind of a He's he cuts a polarizing figure in the world of, of MLS and particularly United States men's national team fans. But at the major league soccer level, this dude can still score uh, when healthy. So um, now that he's back, I think that's a big piece of it. And it's, it's just a matter of this team and how they react to their new coach, Javier Perez, after they weren't happy to have Chris Armas. It, it was pretty apparent in their body language. It was pretty apparent in their results. And it does seem like maybe it is just a, a temporary new coach bump, but it does seem like they have a new breath of life. Well, moving into the mailbag, we have been overwhelmed yet again by your entries. I reached out Sunday and asked for your questions and stepped away to pour a glass of water, came back and had five in my inbox already, and they just kept coming. Wyatt reaches out and says, I would love to hear your thoughts on the great win, but the alarmingly low possession rate we have had and how to fix that. He says, I loved the result last night, but the last two matches we've had around 33% possession. Tim? Yeah, I'm not concerned about it. I think possession is more descriptive of a team's style rather than the team's quality for the most part. Nashville didn't want to possess the ball. They didn't try to possess the ball against FC Cincinnati. Had they wanted to, they could have. We saw that in the season opener. And what they wanted to do was let Cincinnati have the ball and do whatever Cincinnati was going to do with it, which was effectively nothing because they didn't get a single shot on Joe Willis. So there will be games where Nashville wants to possess the ball more. And we saw that 
over the course of this season so far. Obviously, the last couple that has not been the case, but we saw at the beginning of the year that Nashville was a high possession team, and it's not something that I'd worry about aside from maybe some of those truly press happy teams. We saw it, it was a problem against New York Red Bulls that they couldn't possess the ball very well, but that's really the only time so far this entire year where I'd say if they were the, the lower team in terms of possession, it was a problem for them. Five of Nashville's six wins this year have come when they have trailed in possession. And, and the sixth was Toronto, where they were trailing in the match for long enough that they naturally had more of the ball. Mm-hmm. But uh, possession is, is the most misleading stat in soccer in most, in most cases. Um, yeah, and I, I think you can also look at, I think a, a better way to look at it, and I've been trying to figure out a way to, to make this make sense statistically, is how many shots you get per, you know, the amount of possession that you get. Nashville played a pretty direct game because they knew the value of each possession. If they if they gave up a possession by missing a shot, for example, it wasn't going to hurt them that much because they can make so much with each possession that they have. And I think a game like Cincinnati sets the template for what Nashville will need to do on the road, where it traditionally mm-hmm. has had less possession and allowed the home team to take a little bit more of the initiative, play a sensible game in the early stages of those road matches. Well, Nashville played a sensible game against Cincinnati. It didn't reach. It didn't take unnecessary chances. It knew that that front three of Cincinnati was dangerous, but only if you let them free. And we saw them almost scoring, thanks to the Taylor Washington bailout that did not when they were let free. So I think this is the template. You're going to go on the road. You're going to sit back a little bit more, not a park the bus team, not a pure counterattacking team. But when you have those nights, when you need to see the initiative, can you take your chances and not be so dragged back into your own end that you're ineffective in the attack when you get those chances. And Nashville was very effective when it had its moments. It will need to do the same thing on the road in these next three. Wesley Bryant says, with CJ, Hani, and Leal doing so well together, could it be a while before Ake breaks through the starting lineup? And where does that leave Rios and Cadiz? We heard from Steve Cavendish a very similar question. If you hadn't listened to Lamestream Sports, do it on the 440 Sports Network every Friday. Steve, a co-host of that, also with the Nashville banner. And it's a good question there's pressure on CJ Sapong. There's pressure on the wings to maintain strong play because Aki Loba's looking over their shoulders. As long as they perform this well, what does it mean for those guys? And what does it mean for Rios and Yonder? Yeah, I think there's no hurry to break up the chemistry. You know, we mentioned this earlier in the show. If CJ, Randall, Hani are still clicking, there's no need to change anything. However, ultimately talent wins out. If he proves to be a, a $7 million talent, no disrespect to any of those three guys. If the, if the price tag proves to, to be borne out, he will get on the field. I think bringing him off the bench is a super sub right now, especially because he's coming from the off season of his Liga MX season. So, you know, you kind of have the luxury of bringing him in slowly without it looking like you're kind of disrespecting him. So if he's ultimately the better player and the better choice to help the team win, Gary Smith will play him. I think we've seen that time and time again in terms of of the two other two guys that you mentioned i think jean is is starting to see his his playing time as that first guy off the bench maybe go away maybe okay does become that first guy off the bench but this is a team that has used multiple striker situations in a number of games this is a team that I think you've seen, as, as we previously mentioned, Ake can play in various roles. So Jander could still be the, the number one player at that number nine position as a, as a sub or as a starter. So it doesn't really harm him that much. But Rios, unfortunately, it looks like at this point, his early season injury prevented him from getting a grip on this uh, starting spot or on a, a top backup spot. And it's going to be tough for him. He's going to have to prove himself in training to to get back into the good graces of the coaching staff and prove that he can't be left uh, at home as he was 
of the last couple games. That's a shame because we know Daniel could be an asset for this team, and I don't mm-hmm. think the coaching staff seriously doubts that either. They know he could be, but he's just not one of the top two or three. It's tough. It's a tough place mm-hmm. for him to be. One one thing based on our conversation with CJ Sapong on this show now a couple months ago, I think we can trust is that even if CJ is is pushed down or the spotlight you know goes toward Loba. He's a team first guy and he's good at, at developing chemistry within that position group. You know, we asked him even even a couple months ago about the competition at striker and he said, I relate more to those guys than anybody else on the team. We understand what it's like to be, my words, not his, one of these crazy strikers because strikers have to be a little <laughs> bit crazy to deal with that pressure. So I would expect that he's doing everything he can to integrate Loba into the team and challenge him and welcome him at the same time uh, rather than be a me first type of guy trying to just take the minutes at, at his teammates expense. John Mueller says, which unheralded player has impressed you the most during this stretch? For me, it's between Anunga, Mayer, and my guy T-Wash, but it's so hard to pick. Yeah, the obvious answer is Brian Anunga, who's gone from, hey, not bad for a backup at this holding midfield position in Major League Soccer, to somebody who looks like he's going to get legitimate European interest at some point in the not-so-distant future. It might not be this season. It might not even be next season. But he's still a pretty young guy, and the rapid pace at which he's developing is incredible. However, my shout-out, as it always does, goes to one David Romney. <laughs> of course. <laughs> always, always unheralded, always one of the best players on the team. I'm not going to disagree with you. But at what point does all of our heralding move Romney out of the realm of being? I don't. I don't think we. Uh, I don't think we have a big enough mic in this market <laughs> at this point. Wes. Fair enough. At least on this show, he is far from unheralded. Uh, but if John is referring, uh, using that word, referring to national coverage, then yes, Romney is certainly way underappreciated. Yeah, Anunga is my answer. And just zooming in on how he did against Cincinnati, he led the team in possessions gained and in total passes. He was on the ball more. And you know, you may have noticed uh, at home that Dax McCarty moved back against Columbus into a kind of a a hybrid center back central defensive midfield role, almost what Santiago Sosa does in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. where he sits back between the two center backs when they need to absorb pressure. He also has the freedom to step forward, but he's not going to be as involved in the attack. And Gary Smith again moved him back into that role in the second half against Cincinnati. It allows Dax to rest his legs a little more, but you can only really do that, Tim, if you have somebody in central midfield ahead of Dax that you trust and in the absence of Godoy, it's been mm-hmm. very refreshing to see Todd Ryan and Nunga earn the faith to be able to go forward and explore instead of just being asked to pass the ball three yards left, three yards right, like he might have been in his first year. Yeah, and it's incredible to say, okay, we don't have Anibal Godoy, so we have this guy that we can plug in. But he's playing well enough that we can take Dax out of that position as well. It's a, it's a complete showing of faith in this guy that he has made the strides that he needs to, and I think you know, the eyeball test to, to even the average viewer says, okay, this guy is, is really improving rapidly and, and having a really great stretch of the season. And perhaps providing an answer to one of the biggest questions I think that, that mm-hmm. many have had, including us, which is how do you cultivate defensive midfield depth? Where is it coming from? Will Nashville need to make a signing there? They still might look at their approach at striker, bringing in, you know, as many good bodies as they can, but, but Anunga is proving that he can hold things down for as long as Nashville needs. Wesley Bryant with a, a good question here about the upcoming road trip. Again, a three-match road trip. Uh, first of all, Wesley, again, outstanding first name. Well done. Uh, he <laughs> says, what is the minimum point total from the next three-match road trip to equal a successful road stint, in your opinion? And I'll break it down game by game and just say I think you know five points feels really good for this team. Four is acceptable. You have to beat Miami. There's three. You don't beat Miami, then you're, you got to steal one at New England to make up for that. It's a Miami team that hasn't won at home this season. They're they're not not great there. They were tough against Philadelphia on the weekend. Still, 
a 1-1 draw as they conceded late. So there's three points right there. I think a draw from Toronto is an okay result the way this Toronto team is playing. The team would love to get three. I think they'll go into it aiming for three and not trying to just bunker down and get the one. But then there's New England, and uh, New England is a team that is top of the table, one of the best in MLS, and I don't think we'll see the kind of match in New England that we saw against the Revs in Nashville. You can't count on getting anything out of Gillette Stadium. So starting with six points to play with as, I think, you know, the, the best potential, you know, I think if you can end up with five, you can end up with draws against Toronto and England, you're, you're thrilled. Even four points, though, I think is, is okay as long as Nashville is going to go to a place like Miami and win. They're going to you know, go to Montreal and get the win later this year. They visit Miami twice. They visit Cincinnati still. There are wins on the table for this team, uh, but I think four points is okay if they can then make up that ground later. Yeah, I think Miami, as you mentioned, is a must-win game. The Herons are bad, and they are particularly bad at home in drive pink stadium. So if, if Nashville SC can win that one and then take a point from one of the other two, I'm just going to preview Gary Smith's press conference when he will be saying that new England play their field very well at Gillette stadium. He says that every time he plays on turf because he truly hates to play on turf. So keep that in mind for, for a couple of weeks from now, but if they can, if they can get a draw from that game, um, they'll be pretty happy if they can get a draw from Toronto that's about what you would expect. I think anything more than four points, you know, taking a draw from one of those two teams, anything more than that is, is a major statement in the playoff race. If you get, if, you know, if you get seven points from three road games, that's way above the threshold that you need to be not only a playoff team, but an elite team. And we'll have a little bit more about that in a sec. Yeah, let's go to outside in and let's get there. First, let's go to Gold Cup, though. U.S. and Canada still involved. Both advanced to the semifinals. The U.S. a 1-0 win over Jamaica. And Alistair Johnston once again starting for Canada and leading the Canadians to a 2-0 win over Costa Rica. First with the U.S., Tim, wasn't the prettiest match. There were moments when you thought the U.S. men's national team really could have used Walker Zimmerman in the back, but then they controlled play in the second half and ultimately found the winner eventually courtesy of Matthew Hoppy. Yeah, I uh, I fell asleep watching this game last or uh, Sunday night and had to wake up Monday morning and and watch it, um, but but that I, I think probably allowed me to watch it more more closely and I think uh, kind of on a, a one and a half times of, of rewatch I felt a little bit better about it I think James Sands from New York City FC did a very good job stepping in for Walker I'm, I've been really impressed with him in his couple appearances so far but you really would like to generate more against a Jamaica team that um, doesn't have necessarily huge stars. They have a couple players in their starting lineup who, who play for Fulham. This is a premier league club, but at the same time, they had a couple starters who play for USL clubs as well. So there's, there's a pretty broad range of what you expect from Jamaica. So you would like to see this, this, um, this national team have a little bit more, I guess, obvious success rather than kind of needing to nick a winner uh, in the final 10 minutes of regulation. But at the same time, it's a knockout tournament. At this point, it's just about surviving and advancing and, and, and doing so. Um, this midweek game against Qatar, I think, is probably something that uh, for potentially non-soccer reasons or not direct soccer reasons, a lot of people would probably uh, put a little bit more of their, of their hopes into than the Jamaica game even. You just can't lose to Qatar and allow them to advance to the North American Championship yeah. as a guest team who's arguably only there because of Qatar Airways' massive sponsorship of the tournament this year. Uh, moving on to Canada, they are on to play Mexico in the semifinal. Alistair Johnston contributing to a clean sheet for the Canadians against a Costa Rica team that Tim surely badly misses a guy like Randall Leal, who they didn't call into the team. Yeah, I think there was there's maybe a little bit of a, an agreement after the birth of his son Ryan that it was not 
wise to have him leaving Nashville immediately from there. So that's, I think there was, it was not necessarily that Costa Rica doesn't rate him because he's been the first name on the team sheet for two or three years now, but you know, they're kind of at a point of transition. They, they fired their, their coach Ronald Gonzalez, who was doing an incredibly bad job, honestly. And it's going to take a little bit of time to, to turn over from that. And maybe from Lyle's perspective, it's, it's a good thing to not go through the earliest of the growing pains from that turnover. So getting into MLS now, let's look around major league soccer, but we're not just going to rattle off some scores and info about other teams. We're going to tie it back to how those things impact Nashville. I want to look at the home road splits remaining for each team in playoff contention in the Eastern Conference and compare them with Nashville's. We mentioned earlier, Nashville has played more home games than anybody else in Major League Soccer. In fact, they only have six left in their 19 remaining contests, and it will not surprise you to know that the other teams around Nashville have a lot more home games left. NYCFC, which sits four spots back of the boys in gold right now, has nine remaining New England, Orlando, Philly, Columbus, and Montreal. The other teams above the playoff line right now all have 10 home games left. So Nashville with four home matches fewer than their chief competition for the top of the table and ultimately to stay above the playoff line. So if you were to take the points per game that each of these teams has earned at home so far this year and multiply them by the number of games left, you could get a number that extrapolates what their ultimate home points will be for the rest of this season. And if you do that, Nashville, despite having tremendous performances at home, only has 12 and a half points sitting there for the taking. Uh, You know, obviously they could still win all those matches, but based on their performance so far, times their number of games. Compare that to New England, which has double the projected home points. 25, Columbus 21, Montreal and Orlando 20, Philadelphia 19, and NYCFC 17. And you start to see the importance of, of those road performances for Nashville SC, the importance of getting the points per game up away from home. A reasonable expectation for the points needed to make the playoffs is somewhere between 45 and 48, maybe 50 if things are uber, uber, you know, fickle and competitive. If you extrapolate Nashville's points total based on its points per game at home and on the road, so take what I just gave you, the 12 and a half points, then go points per game on the road times the 13 remaining road matches. If you're still with us, that looks like 46 points for Nashville. So right there in that range of 45 to 48, right along the playoff line, if Nashville doesn't improve its road form and maximize the few opportunities, Tim, that remain at home. Yeah, well, it's been good doing this podcast with you, John Nash of A Beautiful Mind. But um, (laughs) yeah, historically, the number is is between 1.25 and 1.45 points per game to make that playoff line. Obviously, a different number of teams, a different proportion of teams because of the size of the league is always different, have made it over the years. But um, one other thing to keep in mind is if there's a great team Pac-Manning up all these points, the playoff line can get pushed lower and it's a little bit less competitive. But if there's a terrible team that's giving points to everyone, get being Pac-Manned repeatedly, I guess, <laughs> uh, the, the line can get pushed higher because the expectation is that everybody beats them, essentially. So this year, we, we so far, at least, we have one of each. Um, New England, good. Miami, bad. So I'll split the difference and say you get to around 1.35 points. You're feeling good about making the playoffs. Obviously, Nashville's goals and aspirations are higher than just making the playoffs. But at the current rate, Nashville has 1.64 points per game at home. So if you balance it out with the road matches, you're looking at at least 1.06 points per game on the road, which isn't that much of an ask, given that, you know, as we just mentioned, a road match coming up at Miami. Nashville still hasn't played at FC Cincinnati. They do need to take care of business, though. We've we've sometimes seen I, the first USL year is, is the most obvious example of this. Sometimes where all they had to do is take care of business and it didn't always happen. 
I think this is a very different Nashville SC team for, for many reasons, not least of which because it's in a different league. But I think 1.6 or 1.06 points per game on the road is not a huge ask for a team with the road games that it has remaining. The bigger ask is to host a home playoff match to get into the top four required to do that. Right now, Philadelphia sitting in fourth. And right now they're at 1.5 points per game. Uh, John Cade asks what our wooden spoon predictions are as we near the halfway point of the season. I'm going to be unoriginal and say I think right now you have to look at Miami. Winless at home in seven straight. A clear regression after they earned results in their last four at home last season. You know, we talk about Nashville mm-hmm. being the superior expansion build, and that's unquestioned. But Miami did still make the playoffs last year, albeit a watered-down playoffs with, with more teams allowed to get in. But now they had lost seven consecutive games. They drew Sunday against Philadelphia at home, but they've only exceeded one expected goal three times this year. It is a group that we didn't think could or or would regress that has has been measurably worse this year than it was in its mediocre first season. Yeah, and it's a good thing that Miami made the playoffs or it would have been short one incredible Dax McCarty highlight. So that's something to keep in mind. But that's right. Um, I, Listeners can decide how serious I am about this, but I think it is unacceptable. Yap Stom of FC Cincinnati is disrespecting MLS tradition by getting FCC out of the basement of the Eastern Conference. <laughs> I think I think he's going to wise up a little bit and over the second half of the season here, get, get FCC back to their rightful, uh, whatever the opposite of a perch is, I guess, <laughs> down there. And, and um, you know, that uh, wooden spoon is going to be scooping out some of that delicious cinnamon chili uh, down the road there. Uh, you know what? I don't think I would eat it out of that wooden spoon for sure. That place <laughs> has been some dark places with Cincinnati the past couple of years. Cincy and Miami are the only two teams in MLS who have not won a home match this season. Cincinnati's only had five home contests as they were waiting for that stadium to get built. That's fewest in Major League Soccer's Eastern Conference. So perhaps as they get used to their home pitch and they use that home field advantage, they will rise. I don't think since he falling to the bottom of the table is going to be a shock though to to anybody who's followed these Cincy teams here in the last uh, last couple of years. All right, Tim, final whistle. What content have you been following lately? Not a whole lot. It is it is moving time for your boy, so I have oh, been man. very busy, but I have managed to to catch a little bit of the Olympics. Um, I have watched a lot of the women's soccer because uh, I have a rooting interest in that. Unlike the men's soccer. Thank you, Jason Christ. But mm-hmm. um, uh, the bounce back from the USWNT after a really, really rough opener is something that would encouraged me. And I do feel like um, it's still an old team. There are players in the Olympics on this team that are older than me. And that is, <laughs> should probably not be the case at this point, even if they are incredible players like Megan Rapino and Carly Lloyd, but. I do think that they have the uh, opportunity to bounce back now. And that's something that I've really been watching and, and hoping to to continue seeing. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And early adversity can can be the best thing sometimes for a team. Although losing 3-0 to Sweden like they did and breaking that, what, 48-game unbeaten mm-hmm. streak, it was certainly a, a down moment for, for the program. I'll stick with the Olympics. I'll go outside of soccer and say Olympic archery is wildly underrated. The precision it takes, I think we can all appreciate uh, but it's also good drama. It's good TV. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a little a little bit of of one hundred level math of trying to figure out how many you know targets you have to hit to make up to the other team. So you're thinking, you're engaged. It's precise. And then you know I think the thing that I love about the Olympics is is individuals being in moments where they have to be perfect. And I can't relate to that. I can't relate to any level of perfection in any area of my life. And so <laughs> to see people that precise and that tough while the world is watching them 
or at least while I am watching them. I don't know how many in the world are watching the archery, but you should. It is. It's really, really good, really compelling television. Yeah, the demand for precision in the Olympics, regardless of whether it's archery or, or, or swimming or any of these things where you just cannot mess up because all of these people are about as good as you and any mistake is, is going to prevent you from getting your gold medal. It's just, I mean, that's why people love the Olympics. It's incredible drama and uh, it's very enjoyable as well. Speaking of incredible drama, Nashville going to Toronto, hoping to put forth a dramatic win against TFC. Any bold predictions you have? I'll give you mine. Uh, I think Nashville, has, first of all, has not scored on the road in 187 minutes. That encompasses the loss to New York Red Bulls. That encompasses the draw against Columbus. Their last goal was in the 83rd minute in Atlanta in that 2-2 draw. I think they will break that two-match scoreless run against Toronto. It's a TFC team that is conceded in the vast majority of its matches this year. I think Nashville will find the score sheet. I don't know if it will be enough to get three points against a Toronto team that is improved at home, but Tim, I think Nashville does get on the board once, potentially even twice. Yeah, I think mine, mine is a little murkier, but I think whichever team scores first ends up winning this game 2-0. Um, like I mentioned previously, and like we talked with Luke about, this is a Toronto team that is starting to really find some belief in a new head coach. And if you can spoil that by getting, getting one on them in BMO field, you can really start to, to find the cracks in that new confidence. But if Toronto scores first, I think the confidence only builds. And so I don't know who's going to score first, but whichever team it is gets one more while shutting out the opponent. I don't think that's a bad prediction at all. And it'll be fun to follow the match. You can watch it or you can listen on ESPN 94, p.m. Sunday night up in Toronto at BMO Field as Nashville takes on Toronto. The game that wasn't the week of the pandemic breaking back in March. I still have, as as does Luke, as he mentioned in the interview, mm-hmm. still have a lot of notes that will forever not be used for that match. Thanks to Luke for joining us today. Thanks to you for listening. We appreciate ESPN 94.9 for the highlights and Moon Taxi for the music. Please do us a big favor. Go on Apple Podcasts sometime this week and rate and review our show. Then tell a friend about the show. As the Nashville SC audience expands, we want this show to continue to reach more and more people as they get into this club. So tell everybody about Club and Country. Rate and review. That'll help us get that word out via all the fancy algorithms that are way smarter than I am. Subscribe to the show and give us each a follow on Twitter. I am at West Bowling TN. And I am at Club Country USA. Easy to find me at clubcountryusa.com as well. Thanks to the 440 Sports Network, as always, and we will see you next week.